Tuesday. I write songs when I feel this way. I grab my guitar and I play. I got the Merle Haggard Blues today. Happy November to everybody out there. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Those tunes are, of course, courtesy of Bobby Mackey. Now, this week, you guys, I have a super special guest for you guys, okay? He is truly a man of many talents, Lance Anderson. He is a fellow author. He's a paranormal investigator. And Lance worked as an entry-level technician, then became an autopsy tech, then an x-ray tech, and finally, the autopsy and morgue supervisor. Life in the ME office, doing time in the morgue. Those are my favorite places to investigate. Morgues, jails, asylums, all of those. I can't imagine actually working in the morgue, working in the medical examiner's office. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear all about the spooky medical examiner and paranormal stories Lance has to share. So let's dive right in, shall we? Lance Anderson, welcome to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, pleasure is absolutely all mine. Now, you know, I must say, it is super impressive. You, Lance, started as a entry-level technician and moved your way up to morgue autopsy supervisor. Talk a little more about this. Pretty easy to do. There was a huge turnover in that place. You know, people would come in because they think the job is one thing, and then it turns out that the job is not what they thought it was. So they end up leaving. So it was easy to gain seniority and move your way up. It took about five years to get to actual supervisor. Wow. No, that's incredible. That's neat. And that's always been kind of like my dream job. I know people might go, what? But I always have. I've always wanted to be in law enforcement or work in the morgue, working with the deceased seeing you know everything that goes on it's just I have so much respect for what you guys and gals do you literally are giving the dead a voice you help solve one of life's most bizarre puzzles death so someday we will all end up on that table Lance can you walk us through an autopsy yes if you're if you're not a homicide and you're, you're just a you know a we're just trying to find out the reason you passed away you know, the body is, it, you just do an external exam on the body, take a bunch of photos, you know, you draw your blood, urine, and vitreous to toxicology. The doctor will make his Y incision and start, you know, dissecting organs and taking samples. You know, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much detail you want, but, you know, generally the organs will come out one at a time. Some doctors like to take everything out in a big block and they just do their examination and, like I said, take samples and everything gets sent out for toxicology. Unless it's something that's, you know, blatantly obvious. Yeah. You know, at a big cardiac event or a brain hemorrhage or, you know, or some form of trauma, you know, that would pretty much be a standard autopsy. And what about if it's like a homicide or something different? What's different between like your typical, I don't know if there is such a thing as a typical, but, you know, like a natural cause of death, autopsy versus not natural cause? Well, if you're if you're a natural cause, you know, when when you're brought into the building, you you get what's called processed in, you know, 
anything you come in with, your clothing and stuff is all logged and it's all removed and bagged. A homicide, you know, obviously you don't touch anything because they're going to be looking for trace evidence and uh, fingernail clippings and all that sort of thing. So homicide is a lot more involved. You know, everything everything that's done on a homicide is, is done in the autopsy room and that's the whole processing and fingerprinting. You know, like I said, you get fingernail clippings and, and looking for signs of trauma. The body will get full, full body x-rays to make sure there's no broken bones or any other kind of trauma. And... You know, depending on the type of homicide it is, if it's a gunshot, you know, then you're tracing bullet paths with probes and stuff. A homicide can be pretty, pretty involved. Oh, I bet. I could only imagine. And it must take a lot longer, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, homicide, you know, like I said, I, one example I could give you is we had a very large man. He was, he was well over 300 pounds and he was shot seven times. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and, you know, you have to you, you have to pull all the bullet fragments out and you have to find all the bullet fragments and find, you know, trace the bullet paths through the body. So he took a long, he took a long time. I want to say he t- actually took like a day and a half to do. Oh, my God, geez. Yeah, to, you know, to make sure everything is right. Well, you got to make sure everything is, you know, right on <laughs> something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to mess up so. anything like that for sure. Yeah. So Lance, working at the ME office, it's definitely not a typical boring routine job. What was the weirdest, most bizarre case that you've worked on? And I know you've had several cases, so that might be a harder question. Well, <laughs> thinking thinking about this one long and hard, I have, I have to say that the weirdest stuff that ever came in was the autoerotica type deaths, where people were strangulating themselves. We had, we had one guy... One guy came in, he had a 12-pound weight attached to his scrotum, and we had we had no idea how to remove it. Oh, my God. We couldn't, we, we, we couldn't see any latches or hinges or or anything, and, wow. and I, re, I, I remember that this poor guy was laying on the table, and they're sending people to Home Depot to try and find wrenches or some kind of saw blade or, or whatever, and it, it really took quite some time before someone did some re- enough research on said device there was a small like pinhole in the back of it you, you poke like an ice pick thing in there and it's a spring latch and it popped off oh but wow that was, that was probably one of one of the weirdest if you want a bizarre one we had another guy he was kind of a local cult leader mm. and they didn't believe in seeking medical attention and he had a tumor on the side of his head and the tumor, by the time he passed away and, and ended up coming through the morgue, the tumor was bigger than his head. Are you serious? No way. And, and, I, and, and I was just like, this is so bizarre. I can't imagine, the, you know, the last, say, six months or a year of this man's life, what he was going through. And not seeking any kind of medical attention. It, was, it just blew my mind. Oh, that must have been so severely painful. I can't even imagine. Like you said, that's that, just... That's right. I, can't, I can't imagine what the last year of that man's life was like. And not to want to seek any kind of help just because uh, uh, that that just is mind-boggling to me. It's like that's when you just set things aside and put your pride down and get your health taken care of, you know? I mean, my goodness. You know, we've, we've had we've had other cases that you know kind of similar that always blew my mind too. You have women that come in with you know like breast cancer or stuff, and they have gaping open ulcers mm. on their chest, and it's and I can't imagine it. 
me, I guess. <laughs> Very painful. So, yeah, those are quite bizarre cases for sure. And what about your most memorable case? My most memorable was kind of actually pretty tragic. It was the a little girl's birthday party. And she had a teenage brother. I believe he had paranoid schizophrenia and he crashed into the party while everyone was there and, and started slashing and stabbing people. Mm. And he ended, he ended up, you know, murdering the, the, the birthday girl in one of her apps and stabbed several other people. That's one of those cases I just can't seem to shake out of my head. Rightfully oh. so. I mean, I could completely understand why not. I mean, what a tragedy. You're celebrating what should be a very joyous, happy occasion. And just the worst of the worst happens you know you don't think that's going to happen you wake up going wow it's my birthday you know oh yeah that's very heartbreaking that's i'm sure that caught everyone by surprise absolutely that's horrible and then there was there was one other it was at a local gentleman's club the story goes is there was a, a man that was trying to date one of the exotic dancers and he either was dating her or she was refusing to date him and he came back in the middle of her shift, all dressed up in tactical gear with a semi-automatic rifle and started shooting people. I believe he shot three or four people that night that actually passed away. That's another one that's kind of stuck in my memory. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely just gut-wrenching. It's. I, I, I imagine that it just doing this, it just can't get easy, you know? Like, when you first started, was it hard getting used to dealing with the deceased on a daily basis? You know, it really kind of was, because that was a very eye-opening experience for me, because I didn't really have a background working with, you know, the deceased or, or dead people in general, so it was kind of a kind of an eye-opening experience. And I remember my first body that I, that I saw coming in, you know, he just looked like a wax figure to me. And it, it, you know, it was kind. It wasn't kind. It wasn't really real at that point, right? If that makes any sense. And but you do, you do adjust to it. I mean, because you're, you know, working with all these other people, and it's this is, you know, day to day routine for them, and they're just this is what you do. This is what you have to do with this one. This is what you do with this one. So you know, you, you just you just kind of get through it, and you you really do kind of get used to it. So right, absolutely. And your first case. What was your first case about? Was it like a natural cause, or what do you remember about the first case besides the waxy body? Uh, well, my first case was a guy that was in his, I remember it like it was yesterday. He was in his mid to late 30s, pretty large man, looked very healthy, and he was just found unresponsive at home. He didn't wake up one morning. He had no medical history, nothing significant for medical history that, you know, would indicate he was going to die and no history of drug use and his toxic, you know, the quick tox uh, drug test that we do at the morgue didn't show anything. So he was actually quite a mystery from the beginning. Hmm. I, and then to be honest with you, I don't, I don't even know what the final outcome of that case was because I think that was going to be determined by whatever the toxicology came back on because I don't believe anything in the autopsy showed what his cause of death would have been. Really? Oh, interesting. He just, he just didn't wake up that morning. Wow. That was my that was my first one. That's kind of crazy that you never were told or found out what the 
cause of death was. That would have been interesting, especially being your first case. <laughs> yeah, well, it said the, the volume the volume of cases that came through that office was phenomenal. So by the time you get your toxicology reports back, as a technician, I'd never see the toxicology report. It would go straight upstairs to the doctor. So, you know, by the time you're six weeks in, you, you've already done it. You know, already dealt with probably 150, 200 more cases. Right. If not, if not more by the time the toxicology comes in. So it's kind of left your mind of, hey, I wonder whatever happened to, you know, case number, you know, 657. Right. So, yeah, I, I never did find out the, the cause of death. You were in the medical examiner's office in what city? Boston. Boston. I meant to ask you too, and I think you told me, like, during one of our conversations, messaging, geez, Boston, I'm sure you guys were very busy. Yeah, well, Boston, uh, Massachusetts only had, when I started there, they only had two offices. They had one in Western Mass, which took care of the western third of the state, and Boston took care of everything else. Oh. From Martha's, Martha's Vineyard all the way up to the New Hampshire border, all the way out to the western border of Worcester County. So it was, yeah, the, there was a lot of cases coming through that building. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. So, Lance, did this work come home with you? You know, like, would you just kind of be at home and you would just kind of think of all the things? The, did the people come home with you, like the victims? Initially, I want to say if it was something really weird or, or something I was just not expecting or accustomed to, I, I'd say a little bit, it would come home. I mean, you have, you have some dreams about this kind of stuff, but it's, you know, you wake up in the morning and you get ready to go to work and it's like you got to flip on the news to see what happened overnight, to see what you're walking into type of thing. Right. So, I mean, in, in that kind of sense, yeah, it kind of came home with you. Yeah, there's, there's just stuff that you just can't, you know, you just don't shake out of your head. It just doesn't go away. <laughs> right, and there's things that, like you said, stay with you, like that poor little girl, you know, dying on her birthday case. There's just things that you you can't unsee and things that just stay with you to this day and makes us, we're human, that's what happens. And it's man's inhumanity to man, as I always say. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, Lance, besides dealing with bodies in the morgue, you also, while working there, you were dealing with paranormal activity. Now, as a paranormal investigator, I love investigating places like morgues. In fact, one of the most active locations I investigated was at a morgue in Tombstone, Watton Tarbell or Mortuary. And I tell you, to be working at one, not investigating, but you're you're actually trying to work and these paranormal unexplained happenings are happening before you. I want to hear more about these encounters. I have a great paranormal chapter in my book. I was just told by someone that read it yesterday, as a matter of fact, that it gave them goosebumps. But at this particular morgue, we have what we call the deco room doctor. Deco meaning decomposed bodies. We had a special room for decomposed bodies, and, and they had their own cooler. Mm. And one of my first experiences with the deco room doctor is obviously the regular doctors didn't, you know, no one wanted to do a decomposed case, so they didn't like being assigned to that room for the day. Yeah. <laughs> and we had this one particular female doctor. She, she was 
already not happy that she had some decomposed bodies that she had to do. And she come down and, well, she called down to the station and wanted, to, wanted the body pulled out and wanted the room set up because she was going to be down in a few minutes. And that's all well and good. So I, I got her all set up and had the body out. And she come down and she walked, walked right by the tech station and, and went over to the door and just stopped before she opened the door. And she's looking in the window, did a little rectangular window on the door. And she's looking in the window and she come back to the tech station and kind, kind of in it with a huffy little attitude. And she's, I thought I was in that room today. And it's like, well, you, you are scheduled for that room today. Well, who's in there looking at that body? And I'm like, nobody's in there looking at that body. I just, I said, I just left the room. I pulled your case out and got you all set up. Well, someone's in there with a clipboard. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we went over to the room and, and opened the door and, and said, sorry, doctor, the room's empty. There's no one in here. And she said, well, what other doctors are down? And I said, there's only two other doctors down and they're over in the main room, you know, down the end of the hallway. No one would have been in here. So <laughs> that was my introduction to the decor room doctor. Then everyone started telling me about the stories of the decor room doctor. That is eerie. And was there a doctor there that worked around there or something that maybe died and is linked there? Do you know the identity of this decomp doctor? Well, that's, that's the whole thing. The story kind of, the myth of the decor room doctor kind of gets lost because no one really has any idea which doctor it is or it would be. You know, the medical examiner's office has been there for a while and, you know, <laughs> doctors passed away. Right. So it, it, it's really, it's, you know, it's hard to say which, exactly which doctor that might have been. Interesting. So you, you, never get a, you never get a clear image of them and that wasn't the only... That wasn't the only time I had interactions with him, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> wow. That, have you seen him with your own eyes? I've seen a shadow form through frosted glass twice. I, I've seen him twice on different ends of a hallway through, the, you know, frosted glass on a door. Those were, as I was working my way up to a supervisor, part of that was, you know, you had to be able to cover all three shifts, so I would work night shifts in the morgue, and that's when things really got spooky, but... Oh, I bet. <laughs> it was, there was one particular night. Uh, it was me and one other technician. And part of the overnight duties is you have to go through a cooler inventory. You have to, you know, make sure everybody that's on your roster for tomorrow is in the cooler. So you have to go in the cooler and physically check all the toe tags. My coworker had come in, stuck his head in the cooler while I was in there doing the inventory and said, he's got the portable phone, he's going to run down to the locker room. The hallway from the tech station, it, it's easily 100 feet, if not a little more, to the locker room where he was going, so it's like, it's no big deal, he's got the portable phone in case anything, anyone calls in. Yeah. So I, you know, a few minutes go by, uh, maybe 15 minutes or so, I finish my inventory and I come out into the hallway and I see the slider, sliding glass door close. And I see this form walk by. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, he's been down the bathroom that long. <laughs> and I turned around, and he was right behind me. He wasn't the one down the end of the hallway. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's this was, eerie. This was, like, this was like 2 o'clock in the morning. So now I have to go down. Now I have to go down there. I'm a little, I'm a little on edge at this point because no one's supposed to be in the building. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And I go down there and, you know, the building's all locked up. No one's down there. All the offices were locked. I wouldn't have made him come with me. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that's crazy. So how long were you working there until you realized 
hey, something's not right here. You know, there's something else here. Well, it didn't take very long at all. <laughs> I'm going to say within the first three months there. Wow. Was, was when that deco room doctor, you know, incident happened with. <laughs> and that was during the day. <laughs> right. Wow. So I'm, I'm going to say that was within the first three months. Incredible. You know, everyone, everyone that worked there knew, knew about the deco room doctor. Yeah. So, you know, the, the stories were always there. And I wonder... You know, being, being a paranormal investigator, that was, it was kind of cool. Right, absolutely. Well, and we're, you know, we're going to talk about being paranormal investigating here and your book in a second. But before that, you know, Lance, do you still kind of keep in touch with anybody that works at the ME office? Like, I wonder if, like, people are still experiencing paranormal things at the DECO doctor there today. I'm, I'm not in touch. I, well, I'm in touch Facebook-wise with a couple of people that still work there. Yeah. Uh, most of the people that were there when I was there have all moved on. Like I said there's a really high turnover rate in that place. Yeah. So most of those people are, are out and you know off doing other things. Right. A lot of them go into a lot of them go into the mortuary business. Uh, I have one friend that I worked with that he's uh, working for the uh, state police ballistics lab now. So it's it's a big stepping stone job for a lot of people. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah. But I, I have not discussed with. The, the two new people that are on my Facebook, the ones that are still there, about the deco room doctor. But yeah. everyone that I worked with knew about him. That's cool, yeah. It makes, makes you wonder if he's still there. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. Yeah. Oh, I don't think he was going to go anywhere. Right. Now, Lance, you recently had your book published. A huge, huge congratulations to you. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. That's so exciting. You know, talk a little bit about your book and where people can, who are listening, where they can find it if they're interested in buying it. Well, it is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and any other online outlet. There's even a Kindle version and currently working on an audio book version. That is book, awesome. Yes, I, I, I was very excited about the audio book. But the book is... It's based on my time at the medical examiner's office, but it's written as a humorous fiction. So Greg Benson would be the lead character, which is the you know regular blue-collar construction guy that ends up getting the job at the morgue. Yeah. Kind of, it's humorous. It's a humorous kind of journey with his career there at the medical examiner's office. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not your typical everyday romance or murder mystery or... You know, I, I don't even I don't want to call it a crime drama. There's a there's a little bit of everything in the book. It's got some good case studies, some some good autopsy stories. There's a great paranormal chapter. There's a lot of stuff about going out on the road to these scenes, and it's uh, quite a good read. That's awesome. That's what I'm told. Yeah, no, I can't wait to get my paws on one of those bad boys and read it myself. What's the name of it? It is called Life in the Morgue. Oh, perfect. Yep. Good name for you know, a good like book. I said, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's different than everything that I've seen out there because, it, you know, the medical examiner books that are out there are all written by doctors or these higher higher educated people, and they're all case studies and get very technical. This is a blue-collar technician, you know, and, and some of the best stories were the ones that happened out on the road. <laughs> right. I bet. So. No, that's cool. I like it. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, oh, I can't wait to read it myself. That's great. Now, Lance, you know, you're a fellow paranormal investigator. Working at the medical examiner's office, is this what motivated you to investigate the paranormal and supernatural, or were you already doing that when you were there? Okay, actually, actually, it, it, it's really not. It kind of re-energized my interest in it, and, and I became much more active when I started working at the morgue. As far as, you know, being a paranormal investigator. Yeah. But the, the house I grew up in was crazy haunted. Ooh, talk about and that. The, well, <laughs> okay, I'll make this, I'll, make, I'll try and keep this short, but it was a two-family house my parents had bought when I was, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven years old, maybe. And my mother ended up getting pregnant with my sister, and the people that were living upstairs had moved out, so they moved my bedroom upstairs and my older brother's bedroom upstairs. So the, the back half of the house was empty. There was two bedrooms, a bathroom, and a kitchen that were empty. Mm. And the two big front rooms were me and my brother's bedrooms. And I used to I used to hear all kinds of noises up there. You'd, you'd hear footsteps up in the attic. You could hear stuff in the empty part of the house, like furniture and boxes being dragged around. There were a couple of nights I heard voices in there. And now, as a kid, I'm probably 10, 11 years old at this point. I was absolutely terrified. So, you know, I complained to, the, complained to my parents that I want my room back downstairs. Yeah. And they're like, no, you're going to stay upstairs. I ended up driving my brother to um, switch bedrooms with me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do his paper route, his early morning paper route for, for six months. And oh. he kept all the money to switch bedrooms. Wow, you were desperate to get out of there. <laughs> I, I, I was I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. So I, yeah. I kind of left out the part of why I was so terrified. The, the kitchen part, there was no door, no wooden door that went from the room I was in out to the empty part of the house. All they did was have a big heavy blanket hung up over it. Oh. And I used to see that blanket going back and forth all the time. Mm. There was a gas heater that was in my room, and... Every once in a while, it, it started happening more and more frequently, but every once in a while, it would it, the thing would get cranked all the way up. I'd wake up, like, drenched in sweat because my, my room was, like, 90 degrees. And my parents obviously started flipping out about the gas bill. Yeah. And I kept telling them, I kept telling them, I'm not the one doing it. And it, that happened, like, two months in a row with this huge gas bill. My father went up and took the dial off so you couldn't adjust the heat unless you had, like, a pair of pliers. Right. So one, this is this is the one that caused me to bribe my brother, and I wanted to get out of the room. One night, I'm hearing noises in the kitchen, and I and I swear I was hearing a voice or someone talking. I'm kind of sitting up in bed, terrified. Got the covers pulled up, and I, I see this little boy ghost go right through that blanket that was hanging over the door, and he kind of goes over by the heater, and he's just he's floating. I know I sound like a crazy person. He's floating over by the heater, and, I, and I'm just sitting there, like, terrified, and I'm like, what are you doing? Who are you? And he just turned, he just kind of turned, like, all in one motion. He didn't turn his head. His whole body just kind of turned. And he just looked at me, and he goes, I'm cold. Whoa. And then, and then, he, and then he just kind of disappeared. And, and that, that, was, that was it. That was the clincher for me to get out of that room. <laughs> Incredible. No, that's... Now, you want to hear... There's a little bit more of this story, because I'm going to fast forward probably 20 years. 
my parents had three three more kids after me, three all three sisters. Mm. And my second sister's daughter was having her sweet sixteen party. This is this is years and years later. <laughs> She's having her sweet sixteen party for her daughter. Wow. And I'm sitting at a table and I'm talking to people and everyone knows I was a paranormal investigator and working at the morgue and everything else. So we're all talking ghosts and, you know, medical examiner stuff. And my sister comes over and she says, oh, you're talking about Danny? And I'm like, who? Uh. And she says, she says, Danny, the little boy ghost that lives at Mums. And I'm like, you've seen Danny? She goes, like, everyone's seen Danny. What? <laughs> and <it's> like, <laughs> wow. And it, and it kind of blew my mind because it was like, we've never, no one's ever discussed Danny before. Right. Until, until that night. That is cool, Lance. That's a cool story. That's neat. And and earlier you said, I know I probably sound crazy, but you don't. That's the beauty of the paranormal and supernatural. It's just so unknown. And I've I've seen full-bodied apparitions and I've seen mists. And I, I've gotten, I know it's like controversial in the paranormal world, but I've photographed orbs with actual faces in them. And spirit kind of shows itself how it wants and stuff you know and it's like that's really neat and and then years several years later you actually it comes up again oh yeah everybody has seen danny and you you know i mean that's really cool that's neat yeah it, it just blew my mind because like i said you know anytime we've gotten together we've no one's ever discussed you know danny and you, do you want the research on this? Because I did some yeah, research on this. Yeah, I do. Um, the house the house was built in like 1912. and But back in the late 30s, early 40s, there was a family that lived there, and they had a son named Danny. And he was known in the neighborhood as Danny the Milkman because he would help the milkman deliver milk. Hmm. There was an uh, elderly housing that was on the street, and he would help the milkman deliver the milk to the elderly housing. Aww. Danny was skating ice skating on a canal and he fell through the ice mm. in like 1943 or something and he and he had drowned but he oh. had lived in that house at that time so that's where they got that's where the name Danny came from and <laughs> wow and probably why he was cold right I was just gonna say that explains everything of why he's cold and why the heat kept going up and wow that is just so incredible that's is that in your book no, my, my, actually, my, my growing up stories are not in the book. <laughs> well, Lance, I think I you need working, to write it. I am trying to work on a, on a paranormal book as well. A lot of people are asking me for more of Life in the Morgue. Yeah. And I think I have enough, I have enough uh, stories for probably at least another book. <laughs> oh, two. I bet. Absolutely. And I have to say that... I released my first book. I published my first book last year. And once you, I don't know, for me anyways, it's kind of addicting. Like you you put a lot of heart and hours and work into the book. And I don't know if you self-published or not, but I, I self-published for me. I didn't have a publisher. And that was the hardest part for me was doing that. And I'm actually in the process of doing that with my second book now. And it's just kind of addicting. Once you get that book out and it's in somebody's hands, it's just such a rewarding feeling, you know? So hopefully that inspires you to, yeah, I'm going to write some more books and get those out there. I, I am self-published as well. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I put that stuff on my Facebook all the time. My paranormal group, Paranormal Odyssey Investigations, 
we do a lot of these library presentations and stuff, especially around Halloween. And people were coming up after the presentation with, with a copy of the book and wanting it, wanting it signed and stuff. And it's like, that's, I, that stuff's just putting a smile on my face for like the next 20 years. Right. That no, someone it, come up and, and you know, like I mentioned that, you know, I had a, one of my former coworkers from the morgue, he was just sending me messages yesterday saying, oh, I just read the paranormal chapter in your book. It gave me goosebumps. He says, that's great. And, you know, that stuff just makes me feel good all over. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It's great. You know, it's great getting those compliments and they just come from the heart. Now, speaking about paranormal, I'm an audio gal, always have been. The electronic voice phenomenon, those precious EVPs always fascinate me. Even after 10 years of doing this, I just, I get so excited when I get them. They're voices of the dead. Those are just so precious, you know. Doing this several years, Lance, I'm sure you've gathered quite a plethora of EVPs. What are some of your most memorable EVPs that you've captured throughout your investigations? Well, I will start out by saying I am also an audio person. I I love the EVPs. And as you know, they get classified. I have two EVPs on my computer that I would, I I couldn't even classify if I wanted to. They're A++. Wow. They are so crystal clear and, and like right there. One of them is, was from a, a local bar and grill. They had two fires within three years mm. and neither neither fire could be explained. The couple that owned it had all these paranormal claims and stuff and they were actually thinking it was caused paranormally. So they had us in there and we were doing an investigation while they were doing their renovations. So the inside of the building was pretty much pretty much gutted out. I was with one other male investigator and two women. And he's up on the scaffolding putting up one of our DDR cameras. And he asked me to go over to the bar and look at the monitor to make sure it was a good shot. So I did, I had a handheld camera that I was walking around with. So I got the handheld camera in my hand and I'm looking at the monitor. And right before I yelled to him, you know, that's good, we heard this. I, I'm gonna. This is gonna be a bad impersonation, but it went yep, and it was like loud and echoed in the building. Wow. We we didn't hear it. We had no reaction to this whatsoever. Right. But you could you you could hear it. It was like right up against my the camera that was in my hand because you could hear my voice was a little more distant. And you know the the other investigator that was setting up the camera, he was at you know probably fifty feet away. <laughs> And yeah. it was just a real loud yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. Listening to that, it just like blows your mind when you get that stuff. Right. No, it really does. I just, I just can't get enough of it. And it really is like me. It's Christmas. It's opening those presents. It's like a Christmas present, and it just, it is. It's so exciting. It's like, wait a second, I didn't hear this with my own ears, and yet it's plain as day right here. And gotta love the super clear ones, you know, those class A's. And yeah, those are really special. <laughs> and and then the second one, since you asked for two, <laughs> <laughs> the second one was a, a place called I can't remember the name. It was a big old mill building, and it was being renovated for a new office space. And they had different types of you know businesses in there. And we were investigating in the basement, which was all emptied out. And we were standing around, and we were going to do an EVP session. And one of the one of the stories in the mill is, you know, back in the day when the child labor was rampant, 
and you know kids were getting hurt all the time mm. um, there was a story about a little girl that had gotten crushed by one of the pieces of machinery oh gosh so we were we were in the we were in the basement and another investigator that I was with you know he, he starts off and he's like you know we'd like to know you're here and then five to eight seconds go by and you just hear this little girl's voice go mommy and it was just it's <laughs> gives me goosebumps when I talk about it. If it's clear as day, there's no mistaking. It's a little girl saying, "Mommy, right." We're calling for her, mommy. Ugh. So, yeah, that, was cool. that is cool. Oh, that is very neat for sure. And yeah, I know all types of evidence is phenomenal, obviously. But yeah, just. Those EVPs, if somebody came to me and said, you could only go in this location just with one tool, that would obviously be the digital recorder for me. I just need that because it captures everything. You know, it captures not only the voices of the dead, but it, it captures the emotions, just every single thing that's happening. It's capturing, you know, and to me, that's yeah. gold. <laughs> I agree. I, I really, I really do enjoy the audio stuff, and I love listening and trying to find EVPs. That is my favorite part. No, mine too. I yeah, couldn't agree more. And Lance, last thing before we end, where is the most active location you've conducted an investigation at? Well, I don't even have to think about this one. <laughs> it would be the Holton Mansion in North Adams, Massachusetts. Very nice. Yes, I've heard of that. I haven't been there. I have a friend, Mark Arvilla. He's with Mass Ghost Hunters Paranormal Society, or the founder of it. And yeah, that's one of his go-to places. He's been there several times, and he said it's just super active and so much history there. What if talk about you know an investigation there that's really memorable to you, or just some moments that were just like whoa. Well, we we did we did three different investigations there, and they were all fundraisers for the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And but well, just I mean, I, you know, just trying to explain the place. It's it's like twenty thousand square feet, and it's got a huge Masonic temple in the middle, hmm. in the middle of it all. It's been on TV, you know, on a few different shows and stuff. But there's we we got the we got a, a door on video slamming itself shut. After wow. being open for like five hours. Jeez. It, we had at least two dozen EVPs from different locations inside the building, you know, all saying various things. There's one of the stories is about a little girl, another little girl in the basement. When, when Mr. Houghton bought the place, they tore down the house that was there hmm. and he built his house. Yeah. But there was a little girl that lived in the house previously. And I guess the story is that she had drowned in a well in the basement. So when people go there to investigate this, you know, paranormal investigators are all, always leaving toys and stuff. So there's a big section in the basement with all these toys. Then we had our REM plug set up in the middle of the toys. And we would, you know, we were just sitting there trying to interact and the REM plug started going crazy. It was just beeping, beeping, beeping. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Then it stopped. But then, well, then it finally stopped and we're trying, you know, we're trying to do an EVP session and, and we weren't getting much. The other investigator I went, I was with, went down the hallway with his mail meter, and he goes. He went into a back room that was kind of back there, and said he was getting some readings, and started working his way back out. And I was standing there with a handheld camera, and on the viewfinder on the screen on my camera, 
I could see about halfway down the hallway just this little white patch sitting up against the wall. Hmm. Not not very tall, but I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it was tall enough to be a child, but it was it was there on my viewfinder. And we can we can hear it on the EVP because he's walking by with a null meter and it's got the red light on top and the light was shining. And I'm trying to direct him. I'm like, you're you're right by something. I said, and he's like, where? And he's shining the little red light around it. And I, you can hear me on the audio. I'm like, you're shining your light right on it. You have to see it. And he's like, no, there's not there's nothing here. And he and he, he got a little bit of a spike. I think he went up to like 2.8 on his null meter. Nothing came out on the video. I could see it on the on the display screen, but nothing came out on the video. Oh. Anyway, I'm, I'm like, can you say something? You know, I'm, I'm trying to like, can you say something? Can you let us know you're here? And we heard this. You got this little, little faint little voice in the background. It's just a little sing songy thing, of kind of going like la 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 in the background. And it was so cool. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Oh. Yeah, that's that neat. Would, that would be the most active place I've ever been. That is phenomenal. Yeah, that's always been a place I wanted to go to. Well, always, ever since I talked with Mark about it. And now you just got to love those places. You know, we all as investigators have that one place that we always enjoy going to and have the most memories and the most active. And for me, that's Tombstone. I mean, you go anywhere in Tombstone and you're going to, you know... You're going to find something, or something's going to find you. (laughs) I would love to go to Tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) Lance Anderson, thank you so much for being on. You will definitely have to be on again. And you guys, check out Lance's book, Life in the Morgue. Life in the Morgue. Life in the Morgue. Lance Anderson, check it out. Again, the biggest shout-outs to Lance Anderson for being on. Really had a great time chatting with him. And I'm anxious to hear more of those eerie autopsy stories. And again, check out his book, you guys. So, did you enjoy this week's episode? Of course you did. Check out the others, you guys. They are equally phenomenal. Want a weekly reminder of when you can listen to the newest episodes? Yes! Subscribe now. iTunes. Apple Podcasts. Cast box and so many others, you guys. Basically, anywhere you listen to your other awesome podcasts, you could subscribe to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast through there. See you next week, my dear friends. Scott Jackson had a pregnant girlfriend, Pearl Bryan was her name. He and Alonzo Walling met her at the train. That night a plot unfolded Poor Pearl lost her life Scott and Alonzo Both hung for that cry 